0: Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by my buddy. Wherever he goes, I go too. Now let's dim the lights and start the show.
1: Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Pemberton's, the bar that provides every flavor of Miller Lite your heart desires. Stop by Pemberton's. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And... Uh, We make things. We work in front of the camera, behind the camera, into the mic, um, voiceovering, um, editing, music. Todd has a band, Mad Valley. You may have heard some of his latest tracks if uh, if you've been tuning in um, and all of that. And we like to use all of that as a method of analyzing films, uh, because ultimately that's what we love to do in terms of our downtime and our professional lives. Like it's just all kind of centered around um, a lot of movie watching and storytelling um, and, and humanity loves a good story. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I'm, I'm interested to dive right into this one this week, man. What are we covering?
0: Uh, so today we are covering paranormal activity. Uh, I think it's from 2007. So the original one, the first one. So if you haven't seen this, please pause this episode and go watch it. Cause we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Yes.
1: So we'll touch on cinematography, combining style and story. Uh, We'll also look at some of the writing and story, selling the world, the slow burns and slow payoffs. Uh, We'll definitely look at some of the directing and editing, uh, as well as a few fast facts, such as this was shot and made in 2007, but wasn't actually released until 2009 for a variety of reasons that I think are you know kind of interesting Um, and other such stuff and things and stuff.
0: And a quick synopsis of the film. After moving into a suburban home, a couple begins increasingly bec- becomes increasingly disturbed by a nightly demonic presence. It's written and directed by Oren Paley, cinematography by Oren Paley, and it's featuring Katie Featherston as Katie, Mike Mika Sloat as Mika, Mark Fredericks as the psychic, Amber Armstrong as Amber, and Ashley Palmer as Diane. Only one person not using God. their actual name. Yeah, right? <laughs> Ashley. Ashley. No, I don't think that. No, applies. you're a Diane. You're a Diane.
1: <laughs> Dude. So no clip. I, I couldn't find a yeah. uh, a good clip. It's all, you know, tones and uh, screaming at each other or not really screaming. There's not actually that much screaming in this. Um, yeah. But when they do, they go for it. Uh, And so I'm curious one, when this came out, did you see it or was this your first time checking this out and what's that experience been? Uh, does it get to you, or has it lost some of its—I uh, don't know—moody shine that made it work so so long ago?
0: No, it it, it got to me. I liked it. <laughs> I liked it for sure. Um, you know, I don't know. I think the whole found footage thing got a bad rap. Uh, I guess after Blair Witch, hmm. you know. I think. I think. I don't know. Blair Witch was so pivotal. I think in most people's lives that like. Then it just started happening more and more, and everybody pigeonholed it into this is what it is, what you're expecting, and this is different. We're all in one location. We never leave the house. You know, we're just there. For me, it was really just I don't know. It was it was great. Um, I don't remember if I saw it in theaters or not. I think I did, but I can't I can't remember mm-hmm. that far back. But I enjoyed it just as much as I think I would have back in 2009. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's really yeah. cool.
0: Holy I know, crap. I know. It was surprising. <laughs> I thought, oh man, you know, it's going to be dated. And, mm-hmm. you know, you obviously, you know, the, the camera's older. And, and it, but I, if you put yourself back in 2009, you know, like uh, it's really pre-iPhone or around when the iPhone came out. Mm-hmm. So it was, it wasn't, you know, these people are not on their phones constantly, you know, they're, they're working, they're doing, you know, reading, she's studying, uh, they, you know, they talk about watching movies. It's like, they, they're almost forced to interact as opposed to just like being on your phone. Right. But also I like that they identified that she can't get away from this thing. So, you know, it's been following her, her whole life. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole explanation of her experiencing this as a child. And this is still with her now. And I like that the this demon hates Mika. Um, it's like jealous. It wants her. And I think it's possessive, you know, I, pun intended. Yeah, um, nice. You know, and um, th- I thought that something really simple, like the the photograph in the attic of this new house, of uh, and it's a photograph that should have been burned because everything in her house had gone up in flames when she was younger. Like, I thought it really inexpensive uh smart way to make you understand this thing this is the same thing as when she was a kid and that it wants her because she's the only one in the photo and that it probably had a hand in setting the fire and then we have you know the fire on the Ouija board later on to kind of tie them together I don't know if they're supposed to be tied together but that's just another another thing but we never see this thing we just kind of experience like we see the shadow and the footsteps which are like claws they're not normal feet which is freaky the way that they the lighting in the setup with the camera in the corner is so famous it's it's perfect it's perfect to me because you have this whole section that's too dark there's no light uh, you know outside their door so it feels safe on the right side and unsafe on her side of the bed oh. and and the whole time and i'm, I'm I'll always when you're watching. You're almost never looking at Mika's side of the bed. You're only looking at her side and left. Like, at least for me, I was only looking there because I was waiting for something to happen because I didn't remember. It's been a very long time since I've seen this film. I remember parts of it. I remember the ending. Uh, I'm just watching the, the whole time for something to happen and nothing really does. And when something does, you're like, oh, you know it's not real, but still, <laughs> the door moving, you're like... <gasps> Oh my god! And then when he's when they hear something, he grabs the camera and he's running around. The light on the camera, being what only thing you see, like, is really smart and scary as hell. And you're waiting for something to pop out, and nothing really does. You know, like nothing. You never see this thing; it never jumps out at you. But it's not about the jump scare, and that's the reason I liked it is because where that's such it's so cheap. We talk about it on this podcast all the time jump scares suck they're cheap they they get your blood rolling but they almost piss you off more than they scare you at least for me because it yeah because i i'm i'm like well i i'm not i'm not in suspense anymore what you've done is you've loaded the gun you've held it to somebody's head and then you pulled the trigger and now that guy's dead and he's not in the story anymore like i don't want that i want you to hold the gun to their head And tell me, you know, make me think you're going to pull the trigger at any moment. It's those five seconds between you holding the gun and pulling the trigger that are the story. And I feel like this whole thing is a gun to the head. So the whole time I'm thinking, what would I do? Well, I probably would have called the psychic guy or not the psychic guy, the the demologist demonologist sooner, you know, but Mm -hmm. Mika is just a skeptic, but I probably would have called him sooner, but it wouldn't have mattered because he was out of the out of town, you know, and they end up calling him. Oh, he's out. He's coming back in a couple of days. So yeah, I I like that they that they acknowledge the the camera, you know, that that Katie acknowledges the camera constantly. She hates it, she calls it out, she's like, this is wrong. Da, da, da. Um, and I love how mad she gets when he gets a Ouija board mm. and how just like aloof he is about it. <laughs> but she's so mad. She's so mad that she she it's not just a oh, I'm mad and then oh but baby da, 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 and then she's not mad anymore. No, she's mad for a long time. And when she screams, when it drags her out of bed, it's blood curdling. And then at the end again, it's blood it's not it's not like a movie scream. It's it felt like a real I'm terrified for my life scream. Um and there's a difference. I can't tell you what the difference is. Uh, it's
1: yeah, I, dude, it's like we're reading the same notes. This is really fun. The, oh, cool. The 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 whole premise, and I, I'm going to just echo basically
0: a lot of what you just cool. said. I like it, because this <laughs> is a
1: difference from last week where we, yeah, totally, we disagree. Right, yeah. This is great. And so the whole setup is amazing. I love that, that the house isn't haunted. Up until this point, that's always been what it is. The house is always haunted. And yeah. turning it on its head... The person is haunted is was a really fresh wrinkle. I don't remember any films being like that. And it and on top of, you know, just being a new fresh take, it also gives us a reason to stay put like we don't we don't have a reason to leave and go other. And now this just got a whole lot cheaper because we don't really need to leave the house ever. Um, But it also gives us a reason to fight for her character. If we don't solve this thing, she is going to, you know, pay the, the, the penalty for it. And that's what's so interesting, too, about the ending is we get to the end, we hear that blood curdling scream uh, off, off screen, and we just kind of assume the worst has happened to her. And the, the the turn of the screw is that actually the worst just happened to him because of her. Um, and now she's suddenly become the villain, which there was a little hat tip as she's smiling and that creepy little smile in bed right, right before that scene um and you're like wait what's happening and then and so whenever that moment happens at the very end where she turns into a monster you're not completely caught off guard because they had one little moment of segue combined with all these other little weird moments of her getting out of bed and standing um weirdly and all that stuff like it all adds up to something um but just the 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 basic premise setting you up for uh something new and like okay I don't really know what to expect and then every time you begin to expect something it's not that uh, they just do it's just a really smart job of structuring the story um, in ways that uh, allow you to do something to push the audience off its guard. Um, and a lot of that too comes back to what you were saying about the the lack of payoffs or the the lack of jump scares. And it's as soon as you execute a jump scare, right? Because how many shots are just, you know, slow panning moves, waiting right for the jump scare and like you said it never comes and it's such a good choice because as you said again once you pull that trigger on a jump scare you've unwound all the tension you've let us relax and normally that's when a movie then does the next jump scare it's like oh we've and now we can really get them uh but then i think that's where the annoyance starts to come into play it's like we've seen that too many times Now it's not that we're, you know, on edge and, and pulled into the story. We're kind of waiting for the filmmaker to attack us. And those are two different experiences um, because one is more thinking about what the characters are experiencing. The other is thinking about what you're experiencing and that's not what you want out of a story. You want to be in the story, you know, and the more you're thinking about what the, the filmmaker is trying to do to you, the less interesting it all becomes. And that's just genius. Um, in a similar way. Like I love the camcorder light, Be, you know, at night it's really limiting our information, of course, but the thing is they could have just turned on all the lights and that's what normally people would do. You know, if you think there's a burglar in a house, you don't creep around in the dark. You're like, Nope, every single light is coming on. I'm going to see everything. And they don't do that. But the camcorder spotlight actually feels reasonable to the viewer because we are getting a lot of light and it's right there in the middle of the shot. And so you don't feel a need to ever scream at them as characters like, turn on the lights, you idiot. I never felt that, you know, compulsion. It wasn't until my second viewing where I was like, wait, they could have turned on the lights this whole time, but they didn't. And that's just really smart filmmaking or really good. You stumbled into something. I don't know which, but uh, either way, you get the credit. Um, Yeah. And the same thing with the, the, the bedroom tripod shot. That is famous. You're completely right. Um, in my mind anyway, like the other nice thing about it, uh, one really good point. I didn't think about how all the danger is on her side of the bed. And it's of course emblematic of the entire story, right? This is all happening, um, to her. Um, but the other nice thing about that whole setup, putting the, the tripod, uh, the camera on a tripod like that works so well, it fits in the story. He's trying to monitor everything and. So it has to go on a tripod, but it works really well for visual effects, too, because all those stunts, you can now walk a person into the frame, have them do something like grab her ankle and pull her out. And because it's all locked off, you have a clean plate. You can wipe him away. There's never any chance of tipping your hat on the visual effects. Yeah. It's, it's all taken care of because everything that's going to be happening is going to be on the other side. So if it's her being dragged away, he's on the other side of her. And so the camera never n- needs to see through him. You can always just erase him in post uh, and it just makes for a very clean visual effects, cheap, like that stuff. Any one of us could do. Um, And you see this kind of effect happen all the time. If you see, you know, those those photographs of people floating in the air they're just on a ladder right and you just erase the ladder or they're standing on a chair and um, doing a nice pose maybe blow wind into their hair or something and suddenly it feels you know majestic and you just take two shots right you put the camera on a tripod you take a shot of nothing there and then you take a shot of them on the ladder and then you layer those on top of each other and you erase the ladder and you just reveal the background at that point because that other clean plate is sitting underneath it's very simple uh, techniques and that's all he's doing here i would imagine anyway if he's doing something else he's overcomplicating it. it um, but there's no reason to do anything else in my mind anyway yeah i so many things the other nice thing as far as cinematography goes is that whole verite style right it's documentary like where the filmmaker is inserting themselves into the film right and in this case our filmmaker is mika even at the end of the movie, they don't say written and directed by Oren Pelley, right? It's all about selling yes. the concept. This whole thing is selling the idea. There's there's no, Katie was played by, you know, yeah. Jessica Armstrong. No, no, Katie was played by Katie. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that's creepy.
0: Um, yeah, I was, I was waiting for that because I, I forgot about what happened at, or I forgot about what if there was any credits. Imagine mm-hmm. not, you know, going to the movies. And seeing this on a big screen and there's no credits at the end because there's none. It's, it's awesome. That's, that's how you like, you like buy in or like they, they tried to sell it. Yeah.
1: Because then you walk out of the theater and you're telling people like, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. Like, I don't, it might not be real, but maybe it is real. And it's more fun to talk about it as if it is real. Yeah. Even if everyone walking, out is like, okay, that's clearly, you know, fake, but they did their job to give them permission to take it seriously. Um, and who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to believe in ghosts and the supernatural and, and, and run with it and scare, go scare someone else. Like you got to see this movie like it. And then you begin, it becomes your movie at that point. Yeah. That's the cool word of mouth marketing aspect is now you're telling your friends, you got to go see this movie. It's real you, I, I talk to someone and they know someone, right. And you can just kind of build it up just so that you can scare the crap out of your friend. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the kind of stuff I would do. <laughs> like, yeah. why not? And I fell for it watching the Blair witch. That was the earliest version of it where, right. I went to the movies with my, I had just moved out on my own. Uh, I was living with my brother and a, a buddy and me and this guy, went to the movies, we saw it and we were freaked out and we get home and we're like checking the closet under the bed. Uh, and I immediately, uh, uh, this was early days of the internet. And so like, I'm jumping on Yahoo and searching, like, is this real? And I have to read like three articles before I finally get the hint. Okay. No, no, no. It's, it's fake. Okay, good. I can go to sleep at the time. Yeah. I was like a born again, Christian. And so like demons and all that stuff was very real to me. Oh yeah so it didn't take much to to sell me and then watching this though i went in eyes open i didn't read up on it or anything but i just knew this isn't this is going to be bs and that's fine but i watched it in theater in whatever 2009 and it was one of the coolest experiences i've had in a the theater because on the one hand the audience was ruckus like just out of pocket everyone was screaming at the screen, laughing, screaming
0: wow. like and I loved every that second. That was of great. It. That's that normally you would hate, hate that it. shit, but that sounds awesome for this film. It was nothing really happens, you know? Like so much that ha- doesn't happen between the stuff that does that like yeah, the entertainment of the people around you freaking out. So good. And
1: despite all of that, I was horrified. Like I was on the edge of my seat. And it was just this weird dissonance of there's this enjoyment of what's happening as well as utter terror. <laughs> like, yeah, cool. <laughs> very cool. It was so cool. Yeah. And the Veritai style, I think, really does a lot for that, right? The, that style grounds us. And just spending time in the world with the characters, right? Eating, talking, discussing their issues. Because uh, the first five minutes are like, this is weird. This isn't like a movie. This is bad acting, right? This is bad camera work. The lighting sucks. And you're just kind of judging it for the first several scenes. But because you sit with it, it. and most movies are like this. The first five, ten minutes of watching Will Smith or Tom Hanks in a new role, you're like... That's not you, Tom Hanks, with that accent. I know that accent. Uh-huh. But then, you know, you get in a few scenes um and they stick with it, right? That's what he's there to do. And before you know it, you're like, yeah, he's, you know, uh, the Shlomo from, you know, the the Bronx. Of course he's got, you know, a, a crazy accent. That's 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 Shlomo or whatever. Right. Yeah. He's just you start to buy in, and that's what this movie does. It just sticks with it. And everyone's committed to the to the bit. And because the way you film it. It just pays off so much, right? The The format itself is very forgiving of, like, the amateur look in, and and the weird edits and the acting, the staging, the camera work. It all plays into this found footage genre. And the more they do it, almost, the more it pays off. Like, be unreasonable. Talk in weird clipped sentences. Um, have these weird edits. Because that's what normal people do who don't know how to film make. Yeah, this is what it looks like. And so they're not acting as we were talking about before we we hit record. You're like, yeah, this this is perfect because it's no one's acting. It's all improv, you know, to a large degree, I imagine. And we'll come back to this, but I imagine, you know, he had a, a, a good outline, maybe block the scene, rehearse it a little bit. And this just do take after take after take after take. And then you get into the, the, the edit and you're like, oh, let's string this, 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 and this. Okay, this went for five minutes, but we're going to chop it down to 15 seconds. And then we're just in. And it's just yeah. a beautiful idea of anything goes because it plays into the story. Not just because I'm a lazy filmmaker, but because the whole story that we're telling allows for all of this. And therefore, let's lean into it. Is genius because in that same way, mirrors and camera shadows help tell the story, right? There's no crew. There's there's uh, no director. There's no camera operator. There's no one holding a mic um, just out of frame. And so normally, mirrors and camera shadows are your nightmare. You're working around all that. Like boom, the sh- your shadow's in there. Boom. Okay, let me find another angle. And he's got to come in from you know, 60 feet away on a crane. (laughs) It's just a headache for the boom op to to get a clean, uh, you know, shot into the sound. But here you don't need any of that. And so uh, uh, maybe a little shoddy uh, audio helps. It Mm -hmm. tells you this isn't professional. This is. uh,
0: Well, and they, they do such a great job of of that. There is that scene of him saying, whisper from over there. I want to see if I can hear you. And we can't, really hear her we, it's just a it's a garbled mess of distant audio so we uh, we really feel like the only audio we're getting is from this this microphone on this camera that's it so anything we hear is from the audio on this camera which is the whole thing is a found footage thing so there wouldn't be any other audio from anywhere else when they have a scene that shows that they also and i was asking this to myself how do they how does he handle battery and footage and stuff mm for all, all night long and he explains it to the psychic when he comes over so it's in a conversation and he's explaining this I get the audio from this mic that's sitting on the table and and it goes into this hard drive on my computer that I have set up and it's all like directly basically the camera just captures it spits it out onto the computer he explains that so now we have this explanation of now by this point we have the explanation of how he captures the footage. He even says at one point to the camera, "How are you doing? You have have enough batteries, you know, whatever?" So we're we're thinking about battery life, you know, we're thinking and then we're like, "Well, what about footage?" He explains it to the psychic, and then the, and then the psychic tells us that we can't leave the house. So any, you know, any weird stuff that would have happened um that we saw in the in the movie, it, like I'm always of the, of the, the mindset, the very first thing that happens that I can't explain, I'm leaving the house. I'm out. I'm done. I'm done. You know, like that, that's just me. Well, we can't leave. Now we have that established. So we have established now that we can't leave. All the footage is going to a hard drive that he can then check the next day. The audio is coming from the camera. That's the experience. Um, the lighting a lot of times is coming from the camera, as you said earlier, and it's all explained through either dialogue that is, not staged and written that is just you know to someone else, not to me as a viewer, you know, um so it's not being it's not dumbing me down, and all the situation is explained as well, so they we do such a great job of of putting us in that world without putting us in that world,
1: yes, know? completely you know? agree, it's all conversational, and so it feels honest, and like you said, it's not for our benefit, even though it obviously is for our benefit, but because one character is genuinely curious. That's a great avenue for advocating for the audience Um, is really smart. And him walking around the house, shooting nothing. Those empty frames are terrifying. Oh my God. We're just waiting for something to fill that space up. And so the more you shoot nothing, the more (laughs) scared we get. Like it's such a great, weird paradox. It's genius. But the camera even allows for simple conflict to create some tension, right? Turn it off. Um, just the existence of the camera is a conversation that can create and generate some tension between the the characters in the story. And we feel that because we know how it feels to have a camera on you when you don't want it on you. And so you're immediately empathizing with Katie when she's like, turn the camera off. Um, and he's like, what? Uh, and she's kicking me out of the room that time, right? When, uh, he's trying to like, I think it's after the, the Ouija board incident. He goes up and she is just pissed. Um, and he's like, No, let's just talk. No, get out. And he starts to leave. Then he starts to go back to her. And we just turn to her face and she's like, Get out. And he's like, Okay. Um, it's just really well crafted. Yeah. The other thing around the, the cinematography is that it's so, again, really smart watching the characters watch the footage. Yes is genius. Yes. It suddenly feels so much more grounded and immersive and less like a production process because they're just watching the footage that they he just recorded. There's there's been no editing. This is just us scrubbing through the raw files that we've
0: already seen. Yes. But now they are like, we're like, "Oh, man, I can't wait till they watch that." <gasps> they are watching it. Oh, okay, they know that she stood there for 2 hours. That's creepy. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Keep
1: it's on. so good, but it's just a genius little wrinkle to use what you have to further your story. Why wouldn't they want to watch the footage back?
0: Of course they would.
1: And doing that helps just create a whole new depth and immersion of this is a real thing that's happening because this is how real people act. Um, And yeah, it just removes this veneer of production process when characters are interacting with the thing that they're making, um, as opposed to they just happen to make it and we just happen to find it. Uh, No, let's see them seeing what they got. Uh, it's really fascinating as far as writing a story goes, it starts in the opening, right? The titles really smart, uh, paramount pictures would like to thank the families of, you know, Mika and Katie, and as well as the police department of San Diego, like, it's just this official, like we're doing this with everyone's permission. This is above board and it's, it's clever asking for permission to show this footage, uh, makes you feel like this is personal. This is intimate. This is we're reading Anne Frank's diary right now. And in, in that sense of, should we be watching this? I don't know. And it's just a very clever, you know, it's simple. Uh, it's, it's text. It's free. You have nothing more to worry about uh, as far as budget goes and other little simple things that they do him asking her right at the outset. Uh, he's, she's on the couch and he's got the camera. He's looking at her. Can I get a strip tease? And she says, no, <laughs> no. I love that. It's telling the audience, this is not a sexy film. Um, We're going to tackle that right off the bat because we're going to be spending most of our time in the bedroom. We don't want you sitting and anticipating there's going to be a sex scene or some nudity. And so we're just going to put it right up front. She's not getting nude on camera. And now you've kind of, you know, unloaded that gun. And we can focus on the other things that we're here for, which is the scares and all the paranormal stuff. Really smart. Yeah, there's a lot of, even though this isn't heavily scripted, there's a lot of thought that went into the structure of this whole thing, obviously. The budget is really smart. Going back to the haunted house, right? It's a free location. This is the director's house. Like this whole movie was shot for 15 grand. um, Ended up grossing 193 million. Uh, We'll come back to that in a little bit. But what do you spend that money on? Well, if you don't, need to spend it on your location don't locations will kill you in your budget um if you don't have much budget now if you got 10 million dollars then yeah locations are nothing uh, but when you have 15 grand that could easily eat up you know five grand depending on the house uh the time of year who who owns the house, um, all that stuff. You could easily chew through a lot of money just on that. And so him having that house is really nice because it's also, it's a fairly big house. You have these upstairs and downstairs. It gives a sense of depth and exploration so that you can now move through the house and go creep downstairs and kind of peek downstairs from upstairs. Right. You kind of look over the banner and you shine the light around. Like that's all really great and playing into the haunted house vibe. Just a great use of the location that he had access to. I read that this guy was a video game designer. I don't know on what level, um, if he was like a programmer or what, I don't know, but he clearly had a really nice other job to be living like that in San Diego. I, I assume San Diego is not a cheap place to live, but yeah, good use of location there. The really nice thing about all these slow burns from a writing perspective is that the slow pacing means you need less for the payoffs. And so... If you're pacing your film so that a door moving six inches and in back is your is your big moment, that's super cheap. And now the next thing you do is, you know, 10 minutes and it's footsteps, which is just sound design. That's cheap. And the less you're doing, the cheaper it gets, but also it keeps the film grounded. Like imagine he starts yelling at the ghost or the demon and it starts yelling back like you might get a really good scare out of that. Sure. Maybe depending if you do it right, which they probably would have, but it also means now you've raised the stakes. Now your next scare needs to top that Mm -hmm. and you become, it becomes this race almost to the bottom in terms of budget, because you're going to burn through that really, really fast. Whereas if you keep the, the payoffs really, really small, we believe it first off, it feels believable, um, but it also keeps it very cheap and also, you know, makes sure that uh, the audience is staying fully ready for whatever you throw at it next. So, so that you don't come back, come down from a big effect. And in fact, we're going to say the big effect, her getting dragged off the bed for the very end. Great place for that. All right. Yeah. You, you start off on that. Then what are you going to do next? Now you got to suddenly throw covers onto the demon and have this whole crazy effect of a demon walking around, grabbing, punching people or whatever. Like (laughs) it just becomes too much. Uh, So the slow burn pays off in a thousand ways, not least of which is budget. The, um, and the way they build anticipation is really, really smart because it's just a steady ramp up of uh, the demonologist, right? The psychic says, look, don't do the Ouija board. I'm telling you, if you pick up that board, You're going to give the permission uh, to the entity to come in. You're inviting it into your home. Don't do that. So now we have stakes established. When he grabs the Ouija board, we know, oh crap, he's opening up a doorway that he may not be able to close. And of course, you have that little fire moment and part of you is wondering, is this going to be like burning down the the place or what's going to happen? Of course, everything's fine and just kind of puts itself out in between cuts. Same thing, like we cue on their attention a lot. Whenever they're sitting and listening and it feels like, okay, there, there's nothing that's going to happen. And he starts getting ready to go back into bed. And suddenly she's, Shh. and now we're tense again because she's hearing something. And, and so the, the anticipation ramps up all over again. And it's great. It's a cue for us to feel tension because they're feeling tension and it's all right there embedded.
0: embedded. The honestly, th- I think that the camera work does that too, because very rarely are you, do you have a good shot? You know, it'll be sitting on the counter and like the person talking is way off uh like either off screen or like way in the corner of the frame or something like that. And it just makes you feel awkward. Like this is not how this should be framed. Like the you know, you you're not thinking this isn't how it should be framed, but you're feeling that it's it's off, that it's it's wrong, you know? Uh yeah. So And I read that
1: Mika apparently did some camera operating in college. And so he, he did some cameraman work and apparently Oren had to tell him to stop framing things so nicely. And, uh, it's, Oh, really? Yeah. The director had to step in and say, okay, you're, you're doing too nice of a job. We need it to be more amateurish. Uh. And that's a tricky thing to think about because sometimes, sometimes you need to be thinking with the camera, right? It's panning around in the dark, and it's paced, and it's very slow, and it's intentional. And um, whereas a normal person is herky jerky, they're just whipping that thing all over the place. And so you're having to think in those scenes with the camera. Yeah. But there's other scenes you need to think of the camera as an object that's hol- that you're holding in your hand, and there's an argument happening, and so it can't feel as an intentional in those moments because that's not how real people act. Whenever you're having a fight. You're no longer thinking with the camera. You're, you're engaging with the person and this camera is now just part of your hand. And so figuring out where those moments are and how they operate within the story is really tricky. And and Oren Pelly clearly kept a really close rein on that um, so that everything always felt honest to the moment and played into, you know, whatever the story is trying to, to, to push on you at any given moment. Yeah. The other nice thing uh, as far as story goes, I love that the psychic gives us all this false hope with Dr. Avery's. So we get towards the end of the film and there's that moment happens when they call the psychic back and they, they say, hmm. Katie's like, if we make it one more night, then, you know, uh, we'll have him. And I know he's going to help. And, uh, and Mika's kind of laughing. at was like, if we make it, we'll make it another night. And then he shows up. And I love that scene because he just, he doesn't, he doesn't get past the doorway. He's like, I got to go. And I feel his tension oh, yeah. just as he's feeling like, I really believe I, I don't believe in any of this stuff, but I believe him. I believe this guy, <laughs> he's telling me, oh, it's mad. No, I gotta, I gotta go. And suddenly I'm like, yeah, you gotta go, <laughs> I'm like, go leave right now. What are you waiting for? Um, And he's having this conversation and he's like, but don't worry. You know, Avery's is coming back in a couple of days. Just uh, hang tight and I'm going to help you. I promise I'm going to help you. So we're getting all this assurance that help is on the way. The cavalry is coming right either the psychic or Dr. Avery's is going to step in and that's going to be our salvation and so we're anticipating that that another character is coming to save the day or at least give us another segment right maybe a séance or a conversation maybe he gets killed like we've seen in other possession horror ghost movies but instead Mika gets murdered and i think that's a really great way to break the rhythm of a normal horror film Right, for one, we let the bad guy win, which seems to be par for found footage, right? Which is why it's found footage and not showcased footage, right? You don't find something that a survivor left; <laughs> you find something that the dead left, and so it it goes hand in hand that found footage usually means the bad guy wins, and but most horror films end with the hero moment of we figured out the ghost, we figured out the demon, the monster, um, and here's the the secret handshake that makes it disappear um you you grab the cross and you say the prayer and you really believe and you chant and hold hands and um sing kumbaya and everything and it breaks all that because we get we're setting up the expectation of a whole new scene and suddenly not only is that scene not going to happen but uh the bad guy isn't who we thought blah 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 like it's just a really smart use of setting the expectation for the audience that you're going to subvert genius Really, this is really smart, smart stuff. And it, it doesn't, it probably sounds weird to some people. I think most people get it. Uh, but some people are like, wouldn't watch this film thinking that there's this many layers going into it because of the way it looks. And of course, that's the whole point. It's to it's to sell you on this isn't smart. This is reality. Um, yeah. it's, it's smart. And so directing and editing, this whole thing apparently was shot in one week, which is... Mind bending. I mean, believable for sure. Yeah. But to think that these guys, and it it sounds like it was also chaos because no one's getting sleep and he's editing while he's going. So he's chopping up some of these scenes, right? So that they can watch it in other scenes uh, as well as probably just making sure he has what he needs um, because it's not like he's going to get the weekend to test some of this footage or he has another editor. He edited, he shot it, he wrote it, he directed it. This is a one man band. And we'll come back to the Blum implications here in a little bit. But the I love the opening shot. The opening shot is really smart because it starts on a music performance on the TV, right? Uh these guys playing band, playing in a band. And it lasts for like three seconds or something super fast. And then we we cut to some other scene. And it's really smart because using that music allows him to demonstrate a hard cut. And a hard cut is a quick demonstration of a couple of things. One, the movie's editing style is going to be choppy, but it also demonstrates a jump in time. So every time we hard cut, we're jumping forward in time. Whereas there's a lot of like fast dissolves and those fast cross dissolves smooth out these jump cuts that could feel like a jump in time. uh, But that's what the hard cuts for. Instead, these fast dissolves are usually to contextualize one scene. And so we're jumping around within one scene when we're using these really quick dissolves and, and saving the hard cuts for when we're jumping around in time. And in that way, they kind of teach the audience very quickly how to navigate through this experience. And it starts with just this opening shot of a music performance. And we hear, we see, and suddenly we get it. And it's just, it's like, to me, whenever I'm talking to a client, I do a lot of VR filmmaking. And one of the the things sometimes I'll throw out to the client is how smart, Super uh, Super Mario Brothers was, like the video game on Nintendo. It's really smart. That first level is genius because it teaches you everything you need to know to get through this entire game. You know, it doesn't save a lot for later levels. Now, there are some, like, underwater or whatever, but 90% of what you need to get through this game, you learn within the first, like, two minutes of playing the game. Like, can you can you hit a block? Can you jump on top of a turtle head? Like, it's just designed to teach you what you need and therefore make it a very smooth game-playing experience. And that's what you do in, for me, VR filmmaking as well. We we work that kind of methodology into how someone puts on a headset and starts playing a video or interacting with the worlds that we build. Uh, but same thing with a good movie like this that's doing something different that the audience may not expect. It's teach them seamlessly how to interact and engage with the story. Um, and I think that's what he's doing here. Yeah. To that end, directing wise, from what I've read, there's no real script. Instead, it's improv but probably heavily outlined and lightly rehearsed. Um, and then you shoot takes and takes and takes and takes. Um, and then you can chop it up with no real editing rules in place. You can do whatever you want. And they do. They clearly do. There's that scene where like she gets the breath blown on her hair. And the second her hair is about to stop moving, we jump immediately to she's down the stairs. And that's a great edit because you feel the energy and the horror and like, Oh my God, because that's how she's feeling. Well, let's cut out the, the two seconds that it takes for her to go from standing there to down the stairs, get straight to it because emotionally that's how it feels. And there's just all this creative editing that you can do because the rules are out the window. Now that amateurs are in charge, we don't have any expectations (laughs) Yeah, and it's just really, really smart. And so you probably work through a scene. um, You shoot it, you shoot it again, shoot it again. Um, Now, some of these scenes I felt like could have benefited from tighter directing and and writing um, just to, to let you buy in a little bit more that this is a real moment, but it, it really doesn't matter. Like, that's the thing is he got away with it because it did not matter at all. Like, his way probably pays more dividends because now we have an 85 minute runtime instead of an hour and 35 minute runtime. Mm -hmm. Tighter experience is better for this movie because you're saving time for those slow bed scenes where we're waiting for something like save the runtime for where it matters. Those conversations where they're, they're bouncing back and forth on ideas. Who cares? You know what? Uh, you're shooting this in a week. You have a week with your actors just shoot it 50 times and move on to the next scene once you know i can chop that to hell and get what i need like if it's just taking one word from here and one word from there and cutting them together great who cares uh it's
0: madness and i love it <laughs> um um the yeah. ending i didn't remember i remembered a different ending and i looked it up and there were multiple endings uh so i think what ending I, did I, you remember so i remembered one with a knife I don't remember. So there were two other ones. So the ending I just saw was the one where she throws him at the camera uh-huh. and then she leans down and smells him. And then she goes at the camera, yep. like with her, you know, like with her mouth or whatever. But there are two other endings. One of them was, I think where she has a knife and I think she's stabbed him or something. And then she and the cops end up shooting her because she has a knife. And then there was another one where I think she slits her throat or something, her own throat and dies whoa Uh, yeah so this one that i saw is the best like i'm glad they did this one because this one's way way better i mean you don't need to do the the throat slit thing you don't need to like bring other people like cops into it or whatever you know that haven't like who is who called the cops you know what i mean like that it sounds sounds so ridiculous and stupid so but yeah, so there were multiple endings and I'm glad that they went with the, the simplest one.
1: Yeah, this is the one I saw in theater. So okay. I got. I guess I got the best one from the beginning, but it would have been cool to yeah. see one of these other endings, you know, um, yeah. unexpectedly. Yeah, this is shooting this way. I think is really cool. You give your actors a lot of freedom and because nothing is scripted, it never feels dishonest. Like it's just, and we were talking about this before we rolled, like, allowing actors to just focus on each other and react to each other is going to get you a much better response than having an actor trying to remember his lines while operating the camera um, and being in the moment. Like at this level, that's probably too much. There's too many things going on. Whereas if you just tell them react and operate the camera now, okay, we get where the scene is trying to go, but we're not married to any given line. I can say things differently differently. I don't have to worry about coverage. I don't have to worry about, does this cut with that other angle that we we shot earlier? No, instead it's just, I'm reacting in the moment and creating new moments, new ideas, and it's easier to direct. It's easier to act. Um, and the director can just be sitting off camera um, in another room, just monitoring probably on his head headset. I doubt he could watch most of this or some of it. Some of it, he can probably just sit behind the camera and, and watch the scene, but some of it, because of the 360 nature of some of these scenes. Like he's probably not doing a lot of any of that. it's just uh, staying as far away as possible to not ruin a shot and stepping in and saying, okay, how about we try it like this? Probably some of these cuts that we're seeing are him shouting directions like, uh, Hey, could you say this? And she says this, right? It's just in the moment, making sure they're staying, staying in it, feeding them a line, testing it, Say, okay, we're going to, let's, let's go back from the top, still rolling. And we're going to do X go again, start with, start with this line, um, and, and just react. And once you get one or two of these days under your belt, everyone's on the same page. Like those first two days are probably hell because everyone's frustrated. You're you're, you don't really get it and you're stepping on each other's lines. And, but after a while you start to feel the, the, the pacing and what the director's wanting And as a director, you're feeling what your actors are best at, um, what they respond best to, uh, and you're suddenly a team by day three. And it's like, haven't we always done this? We've always done this. That's the fun thing about being on set is once you get to the end of the shoot, it feels like you've always lived there. (laughs) This has always been your life. Um, And that's where that sense of camaraderie uh, is really fun and and interesting. And it's bittersweet saying goodbye off of every shoot uh, because of those feelings that you get for everyone. Um, It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other fun aspect of this movie is going back to the budget. $15,000 or Pelly made this on his own. I, I don't, it's not really clear. Uh, I, I pulled up an article on screen rant. I was trying to figure out where does Jason Blum from Blumhouse pictures fit into this whole story. And I ran across this article on screen rant. That was really not sourced. They just kind of said a bunch of stuff. And didn't really source where they were getting it, so I don't know how much they were saying was accurate, and so I didn't rely a lot. But one of the things they pointed out was, Warren Pelly spent his own three thousand dollars on on the camera, and I'm like, where'd the other twelve thousand dollars come from if not from Warren Pelly? Like I just assumed he bootstrapped this whole thing because it's his name everywhere, um, unless he took out a loan or something. I mean, he has a nice house. I I I have no problem believing that he had an extra fifteen grand sitting around somewhere, and so. My assumption, he funded it himself. Now, what's interesting is it didn't, no one liked it. Sundance didn't pick it up. Apparently they picked up the Blair Witch Project way back in 98, 99. And that's why it got off the ground. Um, But they rejected Paranormal Activity for whatever reason, probably a lot of reasons (laughs) because uh, the the way it looks, the way it sounds, um, even though they did a really nice job with the sound as far as world building and, and making you believe those moments with the bass that couldn't have been captured by that mic. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) But it's layered in, in a way that it doesn't matter. (laughs) It feels true. It's just like a rumble. It's like a little, yeah. Genius. Yeah. Great sound design. But Sundance is probably watching this thinking, yeah, we've done that. We've been there. Uh, we're moving on. If they gave it a second look at all, which they probably didn't. And that goes to show that one, not every film festival sees every, every picture and what, and its potential. Um, and so just because you made something that got rejected by everyone doesn't mean you're wrong. doesn't mean your taste mm-hmm. is wrong. It just means that you had a bad run of getting looked at by the wrong people, or maybe a number of other things. Maybe it is a bad picture. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but maybe, you know, just bad luck sometimes. Really good projects get passed over. I mean, there's probably a thousand of those stories. Half the movies ever made probably are fitting into that category of the right person had to find it in order to make it come to pass. And so paranormal activity, getting rejected by Sundance really means nothing either for or against Sundance. It's just part of the process. Good things get passed over. But what happened was apparently, and again, this is it's hard to piece together exactly what happened. Maybe there's a truer accounting out there somewhere with an interview with Oren Pelley or something. Uh, which now that I said that aloud, I'm going to go look for that. Um, <laughs> but from what I gather, Jason Blum, who had an interesting backstory, he didn't just show up, you know, following off the turnip truck. Uh, he'd been working in the studio system for a while. He'd worked for like Miramax under the, the Weinsteins and was a big part of why the others came out. And uh, he apparently, really wanted this picture from the others. He liked the script and the the director was in Spain and he was like, no. Um, And so he just flew out. Blum flies out to Spain, sits for a few hours in the waiting room or trying to get a meeting with this guy. And the, the, the screenwriter was like, Oh, uh, okay, let's go have lunch. Like that's pretty crazy. You just jumped on a flight. (laughs) Flew out around the world for my script. And of course, you know, his persistence pays off. He picks up the film. They make it Nicole Kidman, big hit, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so I'm saying all that to say Blum, how Jason Blum wasn't just a nobody. He had experience. He'd worked for uh, some other production companies before getting a little tired of the studio system and struck out on his own, started producing these low budget films and just trying to find his place. And for whatever reason, my assumption is, he was looking for a director for a project or something, but someone sent this movie paranormal activity to Jason Blum as an example of Orrin Pelly's work. Now the when, the why I don't know. That's all my speculation, but I assume they're saying you should work with this guy. Look what he, look at this other project he made. You might like it. Uh, you might like his work and his style, but he saw the film and loved it. Blum was like, this is the shit. And then for the next two years, he fought Paramount to pick it up. Like, hey, y'all need to pick up this movie. And they apparently rejected him for like two years straight <laughs> before finally. And this is why it took from 2007 when it was finished and completed and ready to go until 2009 to get released. Uh, because Paramount was like, nah. Finally, for whatever reason, they pick it up. And they buy it for 350 grand. Now, I don't know what that really means for Oren Pelly. I was going to
0: say, what do you, what does that mean by 350 grand?
1: I know my understanding is they bought the rights to it, which probably meant not a lot of residuals for, for Orin, but it probably meant a lot of residuals for Jason Blum, um, as a distributor. Um, he, maybe he picks it up or I don't know. I don't know if nothing else, it gave him a lot of credit because that $15,000 turned into 193 million in box office. Um, <sighs> which I don't know if you're keeping track, that's a pretty good ROI. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but a hundred million of that was domestic. And there's a big difference between like domestic and international. If 90 million of that came from international, you're, you don't get quite as much in terms of percentage for distribution reasons. You're getting a lot of other people into the pie. Um, and so I don't know what the actual numbers in. I've, I've tried to look this up before and maybe there's something out there now, but in my past experience of researching what's the difference in terms of take home your your take home percentage between domestic and international i never got a clear number in my, but just to give you an example like maybe you get 70% of that domestic maybe for every dollar you make domestically you get 70 cents back whereas maybe for the dollar international maybe you get like 30 cents back and so more you make domestic the better for you uh, in terms of your returns but regardless 193 million is Crazy success, yeah. and especially if Paramount picks it up for 350k, like they're they're singing Jason Blum's you know songs um, all day, and so that put him on the map as a producer and really helped launch his career uh, as we now know it. And of course, he went on to produce a lot of other incredible films: Get Out, Whiplash. Uh, the Insidious franchise, Paranormal Activity had a nice franchise run. I saw the next like two, maybe three films and they were great. I enjoyed them. They were more of the same and I loved it each time. Like I was there every single time at a certain point. I was like, okay, I'm done with this. But I, I, I got a lot of tension out of it and it was a really fun, quick 90 minute film. Uh, just genius. Uh, but it says a lot about Jason Blum that he could see the potential through all the things that we've been talking about. You know, uh, the style is the selling point. It's not something to sell against like, Oh, we got to figure out a way around it. No, no, no lean into it. The style is to sell. And I think he saw all of that right from the get go. Uh, and it's, it's clearly correct. Like, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Um, I think we've both watched some stories about Jason Blum, some interviews that he's given just about his whole approach. He loves these one to $5 million. Horror films, because he's like, man, if I drop a million and I have certain things in place, I can make that money back. Maybe I only make a little bit of money, but I'm not like losing my shirt. And if I have a hit, then that's just gravy, like a get out. Sure. It costs four or $5 million, but that paid for the next 50 movies that I want to make and bought me 50 houses. Like, yeah. How do you feel about just his approach? And I feel like this is about to be a really fun conversation because you and I, I think have strong opinions about all this kind of ideology behind, uh, filmmaking and financing and all that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before. I mean, that is, that's the way I think filmmaking should be most of the, most of the time, I mean, you know, in my humble opinion, just because, uh, I mean, it's great if you have a gigantic budget and you want to make Avatar, that's fine, you know, but not everything needs to be Avatar, you know, and, and I love the way that he does this. And I wish that more, there were more Jason Blumhouses out there and who knows, maybe will be one of those, um, but, or, you know, more will come, but it just seems to me like it's a no brainer. His, the amount, you, know, you look at, at things and, and um, just economically and, and you say, Oh, so-and-so made a lot of money and had a lot of success doing this. And most of the time when that happens, a new industry is born or more people flood that market, but it doesn't feel like that is the case. And I don't understand why. I mean, maybe it's because he he usually can do this kind of thing with horror films And we don't want 30 horror films a year. You know what I mean? So, you know, maybe there's only place for one Jason Blum, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's understandable. But, you know, the idea of let's let's just spend a little bit of money on the story, on a good story to then make, you know, a lot of money in the end. I think that can happen, you know, in not in, in something beyond horror. You know, if you have a film, you have a script that you finished. It's a finished script, and it's great. You could make that film for fifty thousand dollars. You know, a hundred thousand would be great, but you could you could make it ostensibly for fifty grand. And if you had good distribution, you could easily make that back. I mean, easily, right? Yeah. Like if you had good distribution at at, at theaters across the, the the country, or at certain amount number of theaters across the country you could easily make 50 100 150 grand back and whoever invested you know if they have enough money to throw 50 grand in and they are an investor they are like a Jason Blum or something could make you know 100x on on that of course why not do that kind of thing you you know if you're if you're used to spending you know a million dollars on a film spend a you know 100 grand on 10 films and if nine of them flop, but one of them is great, you've more than paid for all nine. I mean, it's it's kind of a no-brainer. I think it's brilliant. It's, uh, the first time I heard about that, I thought, wow, why is that not how Hollywood operates? Why does Hollywood decide to spend $100 million on a movie and gamble? I mean, you're literally gambling, hoping that it makes that. And none of them make it. I mean, like, it tell me the last movie that made any money that was gigantic like that most like i would argue that a lot of movies that you know spend are are cheaper are more successful money wise uh now i'm just saying that i have no no doubt right. to back that up but yeah. it just it feels right it feels like oh this is more real you know this is more like like we didn't spend 150 million on this movie we spent 3 million or 1 million or whatever, it's almost like the lower the budget, the more people want to go see it or, or the more buzz it gets, or there's something twisted around, you know, like, like we talked earlier about the creator. Well, they shot that film on a very cheap camera. And that's the thing that's blowing up right now. It's like, Oh, you didn't shoot it on an Ari, you know? Oh, you didn't shoot it on a hundred thousand dollar red or whatever. You, you shot it on a $3,000 camera. I could buy at Best Buy. We're not even talking about the story. We're talking about something around it, you know? And so if you, if you know, decide, oh, I'm going to make movies for a hundred thousand dollars, but put a big promotional push behind it because of of something, then I can make that money back. Do that 10 times. Yeah, you can make, and we're just talking about the economics of it, not even the storytelling. Mm. But then when you pair it with a good story or a good, a well put together feeling or emotion, throughout the film like this, like paranormal activity. I, I mean, you have a smash on your hands. I would art, you know, I've seen interviews with him, Jason Blum, where he says that he thinks that his career really took off during the purge, the first purge movie.
1: Oh, sure.
0: You know, and I get that. Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't know, to me, it feels like this was a, a turning point. Like this, this film was a turning point because it holds up. It's completely believable story wise the the acting doesn't feel like acting i watched this film ready to tear it apart acting wise yeah. you know i was really yeah. i was like okay do i believe that i kind of believe that yeah yeah do i believe that <laughs> yeah i kind of believe that you know and and um so i was ready to tear it apart but it felt very real and this was the first time to me that i like i could i could go back and watch this movie now and still be scared wow Even though I just watched it last night, I can go watch it again and still be scared. And I, I think that that has a lot to do with it, but it's just this, I, this mentality of make more and hopefully something will hit, but if you spend less on it and you've given more, more, um, you know, new actors, new directors, new writers, a chance. I mean, how does that not benefit everyone? It benefits you because you're able to invest a little amount and maybe something will land probably I mean, like, hopefully something will land. If you're in Blumhouse now, probably something will. And you're giving a lot new people um, a chance. You could d- discover the, uh, the next new great actor, the next new great director or writer. There's so many people get more opportunity. Why does Hollywood feel like, you know what, we're good. We're good with all of our A-list actors. We're good with all of our A-list. We got Nolan. We're good. You know what I mean? Like, we got, we got... Uh, Spielberg, we're good. You know, uh, Scorsese, we're good. What about the next Scorsese? Who is out there, but needs a chance? You know, give him a chance, give him a chance. You know, he, what about the next Scorsese or or Tarantino who goes and makes a film on his own without anybody else, without any other money or anything like that? Has the movie, it's done, it's, you know, but it, nobody sees it, you know, like find it. We need more people it to, it to be like the 80s um, for music in every club, every night you had a a a, a rep from a, a, a label in in every single club it, all over the country. They were all looking. Nobody's looking anymore. Nobody's out there looking, wow. you know, and I'm sure that there's people in the industry in the film industry that would say, no, that's not true. People are looking. Da, da, da. No, you're not. You're looking for the next hit. You're not looking for the story. Or you're not looking for something that that you you hope will land with other people, but you don't know because nobody's ever seen it before. You're looking for the the thing that's going to set your career as someone who's discovered this. Like, no, 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 no. That's not what Jason was doing. That's not what he does. He takes something and he says, What have we not seen before? That's the thing I want. Because that's the danger. That's not
1: safe. Everything that you're talking about are these studios and a and r reps that are out looking for the safe play that's going to be a hit
0: yeah but they're not but then they go off and they they gamble a hundred million dollars on the next fucking marvel (laughs) film and hope that it lands and it doesn't Uh, you know and it loses its shirt how can you do that it's like you you have a million dollars and you go to you go to uh vegas and you put it on black no, you don't do that. You know, you go to a blackjack ta- twenty dollar blackjack table. You make some money, then you use that money to make more money to gamble. You make more money, and then you use that money to gamble and make more money. You're, so you're using the house money. Like that's the whole point. So Jason can go and spend a fifty five hundred thousand dollars on a movie, make a million, and then spend five hundred thousand that he made on that on the next movie, make a million, then spend a million. On the next movie, then make another million, then spend two million. It's just exponential. It doesn't make any sense why why studios would do anything else.
1: So you've heard my theory on this, and I'm going to say it again, as if you haven't, um, for, the, for the viewer-listener uh, benefit. And my theory, and it feels pretty plain on its face, of course, is that everyone is addicted to money. Disney, Fox, whoever – they've all gotten way too big paramount like it it whenever you're trading now as i'm going to go look at disney's market cap disney has a 151 billion dollar market cap almost 152 and it no longer pays dividends to for them to say oh we made a million dollar movie and made 10 million dollars like that's not going to move their needle anymore they're addicted to having their stock react Based on big press that, oh, we have a billion-dollar movie. Oh, we have three billion-dollar successes. And they can no longer be satisfied with these smaller returns because they're so big. They're too big. Blum has been so genius in allowing a million-dollar success to actually be a success. That means a lot to him. That means a lot to his investors. That means a lot to his cast and crew um, and to his directors. Like They get paid off when their, their films do well. Who doesn't want to work in that environment? Because now you're incentivized to create something much more meaningful and personal and to put your best foot forward. And these bigger films are just thinking about how can we spend more to make it more spectacle? And at some point they stopped engaging with the story <laughs> and they started only engaging with you know visual effects and how can we make bigger set pieces? How can we shoot it in slower motion <laughs> like it's just it's insanity because no one cares about that stuff. No one's engaging with, you know, a Marvel film because they want to see a big explosion. They're engaging with Marvel films because they care about Spider-Man, yeah. because they care about Iron Man. And the less that you're trying to tell their stories and the more you're trying to make it about, "Oh, this film you wrote this this the screenplay but Where's the big chase at the end? We need a big chase sequence. What's the big set piece at the end? We we need a really cool big set piece, like the writing around that stuff instead of allowing whatever the story needs to be in order to maximize the emotional engagement, allowing it to be just that. Mm-hmm. And instead, it's about how can we pay it off visually, um, so that audiences feel good about paying their you know twelve bucks. And it's it's a sad state of the affair whenever you're less concerned about the story itself than you are about uh, all the support superfluous elements that go with
0: it i'm going to send you a link here of this is how they did the the foot drag this guy recreates how they did the foot drag and it's exactly what you is it really? (laughs) yes yes where they key out well first off they split the screen they take a plate plate they split the screen and and then they do everything on the left side of the screen but the rope thing like it's actually really smart because i didn't remember that she was wearing pants but they tie something to her leg and they use a rope that they then key out and post to pull her towards the bathroom out of the bed and then out the, out the door. So they have two ropes that are tied to her. One goes to the bathroom. So you have somebody pulling her towards the bathroom out of the bed. And then one outside the room that then pulls her out of the room. That is the special effect. That is it. It is so manual. It's crazy. (laughs) It's, It's two ropes. And, and, um, you know, you're talking about like, oh, we need a chasing at the end. Like, I'm not saying that there's no place for those things in Hollywood. Yes, that agreed. is, they're super entertaining. And every now and then I like seeing things explode. Don't yes. get me wrong. <laughs> but, but to have something that sticks with you for 15 years and I can go watch it now and it still has an effect on me. And that is a practical thing that I could literally do right now in my bedroom by myself with nobody, well, with two other people with a rope. <laughs> You know what I mean? I could get I could get my wife and my friend to come over here and do that is uh, is amazing. You know, and that is the kind of stuff that I think that the reason it sticks with you is because it's it's so simple that you wouldn't think that it's that simple. And it's just brilliant. It is. It is. And we've seen
1: similar stuff with everything everywhere. Like a lot of their effects were just very simple, practical, smart. Oh, well, we'll set up three TVs. And that'll be the way that we're creating this effect. The lighting will be accurate. And it's just going to be her sitting in front of, uh, sitting in the middle of all these TVs and that'll be the shot. Uh, it's just a bunch of editing, uh, beforehand. And then, you know, we capture it in camera and we're good. And now it's just, how can we splice this into like, it's simple ideas won't come about whenever you have $200 million to spend on your movie. You're not thinking about, what's the smartest way to make use of my budget. You're thinking about what's the fastest way we can shoot this yeah. and you're paying for it. That's the old, the old pick two, right? Cheap, fast quality. Um, You can't have fast and quality and make it cheap. Like, yeah. and that's what's happening. Like I've read so many films in these really huge budget uh, movies. They go into production before the script is even finished. What? Like, there's there's not a lot of movies that can get away with that. Um, and the ones that do, do it by luck. Like, I love Gladiator. That's an incredible movie. But the fact that they went into production before the script was finished and still writing it and in, in, in the process of shooting it, dicey. And I could probably point to some other Ridley Scott films where that didn't pan out. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, that's the, that's the exception. That shouldn't be the goal. Like don't start production until you know what your movie is. And this is why Pixar films tend to do really, really well is because they, they, they script it, they test it right in these edits. Um, they say, oh, that's not working yet. What's wrong with this story? Oh, let's try this. And so they're making the movie before they make the movie. So by the time they go to make the movie, they only make what they need to make and they know it's going to work. Um, because the story is all very tightly interwound, um, with everything else that's happening, like studios have just, I don't know what needs to happen. If it's just, we need more a 24s and Blumhouses. Um, and that that's the the cure. But I think if we don't have that happen without a 24, we are having a really hard time keeping movie theaters around, um, because waiting for the next Marvel film is not going to keep audiences going enough into theaters to keep those theaters operating
0: yeah well not anymore not Not anymore. not yeah not since thanos like it's not a it's not a thing anymore and and i think honestly so many people are superheroed out i mean i I just can't take another one I'm i'm done i'm over it but yeah no i couldn't agree more i think that we do need more a24s do need more blumhouses and and they operate from the same from this this like perspective of what's new what's different let's do something else um and that is why that is what keeps me going to the theater yeah right i i don't want to go see the same thing that i've seen before or if i am i want to ex- i want to experience something else as a surprise uh and let's take that chance i mean we used to take chances all the time let's just get back to that place where we're taking chances and i mean i know you know i'm sitting here from my ivory tower here like saying, oh, let's take chances. Well, it's not my money. Yeah. You know, It's uh, I get it. But if you're going to spend, you know, $50 million on a movie, like that's more of a gamble than, uh, you know, than spending, you know, $5 million on 10 movies to me, you know, then you've got a 10 in one chance. The, the thing here is the distribution and the, and the marketing. If yeah. you know how to do that, you can make Anything you can make money at any movie. Like I would argue that that you could make your movie, Wes, and if Jason Blum bought it, no matter how it what no if matter I, what if I made
1: garbage, he if could you made still trash turn a
0: profit. You could turn a profit. Yeah. Guaranteed. So what's what is the problem? I don't I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah. And I, I think you're right. I think it's that they're inflated. These um studios are inflated and they need these massive returns well no that doesn't even make sense to be honest because like you're spending so much to hopefully make it but then you don't make it so it's just very confusing to me
1: because whenever your your properties are the thing that sells no one's no longer anyone is going to a marvel film to see like a really good story they're going to see a marvel film and at that point you've kind of trapped yourself you have yeah. to spend that money or else it no longer feels like a Marvel film. Yeah. And how do you, how do you unwind that? Like you can't. And so they're in a spiral. They don't realize it yet, or maybe they do. And uh, they're, they're working to to figure it out. But uh, if you're not creating new properties at a minimum, then you're, you're ultimately going to uh, spend your, your cash, right? Because yeah. there's only so long Marvel films are going to keep banking. And I think we're seeing it starting to dip a little um same thing with star wars like uh you you beat that horse too much and suddenly no one's showing up for it anymore and that that 2 300 million that you spent gone like why all of a sudden
0: of has there been just over the last i don't know 7 years or so so much star wars like we we i don't get it i mean uh, it, we had a a good window there where there was no star wars stuff where it was okay. we did the the, the middle, the three, the first, and then the the last three, and then we're going to take a break. We took a good break. And now there's a freaking series every year, a new series on, on Disney plus. I don't, that's just.
1: Well, when they, they got screwed, well, Disney bought, yeah. you know, the, the property from Lucas and spent whatever it was a few billion um, worth it. I mean, that's what that's worth. Then they launched their Disney plus and it was like, how do we get people to sign up? Right. And it's we use the 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 properties that everyone buys. And that turned
0: into its own curse. Yeah. It's just regurgitating. It really stuff is. Anyway, I think we're Yeah, fair, 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 fair You're fair. right. You're right. We just turned into a, like a huge conversation. Yeah. Um uh, we know how to fix it. No. Yeah, I mean of I, course. honestly, you know, the whiplashes, the 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 paranormal activities, the um the saw, you know, like these films that don't cost a lot. And it's just about the mentality of the individual and the story that's happening to and around them that, you know, and it can all happen in one location, even like that is really cool. And I, I think that it's a, if nothing else, it's a reprieve from the just like over budgeted, you know, Hollywoodized stuff that comes out. It's a reprieve for, for us. So like when I watch a film like this, like paranormal activity I, I I feel even though it's tense and it's scary and I'm I'm like oh, on the edge of my seat I feel <sighs> relaxed at the same time and can take it in because I don't have all this feedback mm-hmm. coming at my rods and cones night for two and a half hours you know we have these all these epic two and a half three hour movies four hour movies not four hours but they're super long movies, and while they're great when they are supposed to be that long, having a ninety-minute movie where I can get in, feel what they want me to feel, and get out is pretty awesome. I gotta say,
1: it's a really clean experience. I dig it. Kudos to Orrin and to, to yeah. Jason Blum for fighting for it. Just because someone has a good movie, every every artist needs a champion. Yeah, and so hats off to Jason Blum for being that champion for, for Pelly. Hopefully that paid off in more ways than just the, uh, the 350 K, but man, I, I really enjoy it and I'm inspired by it. Um, I'm always inspired when a movie does something for under like 20 grand and has grand aspirations, but plays within its wheelhouse. It knows where to reach Mm -hmm. and when not to. Um, and that's a, that's a really hard balance because, after going to the movies, especially in this era, in 2006, 2007, when he made this, I can imagine you're watching all these Eli Roth movies, Teresa's Go Home and Hostel, and everything's blood and guts. Everything is blood and guts. And to sit there and say, no blood. <laughs> in fact, <Yeah>. nothing happens. <laughs> That's yeah. going to be terrifying. <laughs> like, that takes a lot of guts, man. Um, and and I really dig that. And so figuring out what's missing and, and like, putting your money where your mouth is very cool and very inspiring.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show you people don't really know what they want until you tell them yes. what they want or show them what they want. Yes. You know, so don't worry about what's going on right now. You do your thing. In fact, look at what's going on and do something opposite. Like you never know if it if it sings to you, you never know. Like it is, it is, a true wild west out there, and I feel like a lot of times people think that that you have to be on the pulse. Nah, nah, there is no pulse.
1: There is no. You pulse. create
0: your own pulse. Like you just do your thing. You know what I mean? So anyway, love great, it. Great movie. Yeah. What uh? What are you gonna recommend this week? I'm gonna go 180. A total, not, not. I mean, not total 180, but like actually, I'll say in the same ballpark. Uh, you know, a lower budget film but not a scary one. I'm going <laughs> to recommend office space, um, which is okay. just a cult classic. I think it nice. I don't know, it's like $10 million budget or something like that. But uh, if you know the, if you know the movie, you know, the movie, you know, um, it has a dear place in my heart and it, I think it definitely holds up for sure. So nice. Space.
1: Yeah. I was on the fence. I was debating maybe doing the others. I've been wanting to, I almost, I almost wanted us to cover it, you know, during the series, but ultimately, didn't um i am instead going to recommend audition Mike, uh it's if you s- saw this movie and you're like i like the tension i want a little more action audition is the upper limits of my ability to tolerate like torture porn um it's brutal fascinating and uh it will kill your night of sleep like you're not going to bed after that and so if really? you want that if you want that experience of like oh that was terrible, not on the same level of of a martyrs. That's I our. Was just going to ask you. That's what our are limit. We <laughs> it's it's <laughs> a it's a notch or two just below martyrs. So not as bad, but and in some ways not nearly as bad um, because martyrs was the most violent thing I've ever seen against women in my life, <laughs> and so I could yeah. never rewatch that. But in that way, it's nothing like uh, martyrs. But it's still God. Uh, I can st- yeah, yeah 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 it'll okay. it'll get to you yeah so if you need something else that's going to fulfill your halloween you know nightmares uh that should do it for you yeah uh stay tuned for next week we'll take a look at a new ghost story called talk to me uh it's an australian film um and i think there's a lot of interesting things going around uh, behind the scenes on that one. And so that'll be another interesting conversation. Um, and stay tuned for that. It might be in theater still where you're at or, but it's definitely online for rental now. And so, uh, there's a couple of different opportunities to, to check that out if you haven't already. Um, yeah. And if you're enjoying this show, don't forget, subscribe, leave us a review, leave us a note. If there's something you want us to talk about, kind of things you find interesting, um, or why you think paranormal activity is the best, worst thing ever. I think to me paranormal activity is like the most quintessential ghost story out there not that, i'm not saying it's the best i'm saying it's the most quintessential ghost stories are all about thinking about going around a campfire telling ghost stories ghost stories really aren't about the story it's about the storyteller and so Watching paranormal activity and it's all about the storytellers it's all about the people living in it um, and you're living off of their fear in the same way and around the campfire you're living off the the terror that the the guy with the flashlight or the, the woman with the, the the flames in her face are like telling you these creepy things it's all about the atmosphere and that's paranormal Paranormal activity to a T. Uh, and so I I really dig that. Um, and so yeah, tell us what you think about paranormal activity. And if you want to leave a note on this episode, you can do that at the slash
0: paranormal activity. And our quote of the day is from Jason Blum. The key to a good horror movie is what happens between the scares. The scares aren't the tricky part. If you're involved in what's going on in between, the scare is going to trick you. If you're not, the best scare in the world will not be scary. That's what we were talking about earlier it's not it's the uh it's not the the scares we don't need jump scares here what we need is tension yeah and this movie keeps that in spades the entire time i mean even when even when the psychic is over is like in the house i don't feel like he's gonna help them you know like (laughs) the whole time there's one moment when he first gets in there i'm like okay he's gonna and I don't know why I felt that because <laughs> you know it's the it's like early in the in the movie, but like okay they've got a psychic here okay all right, um, but then you know when he comes back it's like just as it, it it only heightens the tension, so yeah, great great quote
1: I love it it's all about emotional involvement if you can't get your audience emotionally engaged with the characters, then why do they care what happens to them like yeah. that they don't. And so jump scares don't pay off. No scares pay off. Uh, and then it's just about terrorizing the audience itself. That's, I think that's the Eli Roth, you know, style is let me just show them visually gross things. Um, and in that way, I'm terrorizing, I'm scaring you. And it's like, no, you're just showing me messed up crap that I'm not gonna be able to sleep tonight. Yeah. Uh, if you want me to, to feel something, that's a different story. Um, yeah, I love that. That's his focus. That's what he's thinking about whenever he's reviewing a story or a script he's thinking about, do I care about what's happening between the scares? And if I am, that's a story I want to be involved in. That's really smart.
0: You, you know, you just said something that made it like kind of click for me a little bit that like in this movie, as opposed to like to other scary Films, other scary films, I feel scared for myself. Hmm. But this movie, I never felt scared for myself. I felt scared for the people in the movie. Yeah. I felt scared for Katie. I never felt scared for Micah, really, uh because it was always going after her. You know, even when he saw the the smat, he was smashed in the, the photo, which is another great cheap yeah, thing. We never see right. that happen. this happens, or the chandelier swinging, <laughs> yeah. amazing. But I felt scared for Katie, you know. Her performance was really great. Her screams were really great, and and it always always happening to her. So I felt scared for her, but not for myself. In some other films, I feel scared for myself that maybe this could happen to me or whatever. Like I wasn't ever thinking that. I was thinking, oh no, it's going after her. And so that's a testament to the invol investment that the film drags out of you into the the character for the characters themselves. Yeah,
1: that's a really yeah. I love that. And just as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the camera itself, almost playing a character in the sense that the she's she's being haunted by two things. There's the demon, but there's also the camera. And at the end of the day, you know, she attacks and kills the camera, the viewer. Um, and it's a really interesting extension of her boyfriend almost playing the part of an, an oppressor. And that's something that you know gets touched on throughout the film she's frustrated with him for playing his role of aggravating the demon um, and he does that through the camera and through filming everything and of course directly antagonizing it but i wonder if there's another layer here where the camera acts as a different kind of oppressor um, as opposed to the, the one that she's been living with her whole life and now she's having to fight a whole new uh, uh, demon so to speak yeah, yeah. I, I don't know interesting uh, yeah
0: yeah Anyway, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I'm so glad that we're on the same page here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably one of my favorite scary films. You know, so it's, yeah. it's definitely up there. Yeah. So, hope you, hopefully, you guys enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Uh, please subscribe, review us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, uh, tell a friend. It all helps. It really, really does. And if there's a film you'd like to see us pick apart, please make that recommendation. And uh, we love hearing from you. And until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes go watch the movies.